Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Tim Rogers, lead pastor at Grace Point, and we're just glad to have you with us. Thanks for making it this morning. I mean that. Um, always grateful to see your faces, and some of you actually smile when I look out at you, which is incredible uh, to see, and some more of you now are smiling. Doesn't that feel better? Yeah? Hey, thank you, worship team, for that. Um, they introduced the song to us. If you've never heard that before, it's a great uh, song about our great God. I believe that'll be making more of an appearance as we keep going, but thank you guys for leading us and serving us that way. Hey, before I get going this morning in the morning's message, I just want to bring a brief update on Together 2013. Together 2013, for those of you who are new to Grace Point, this is a partnership between Grace Point Church, Keystone, Peckway Valley School District, the Factory Ministries, and Paradise Township right now, in which we are trying to work together for the common good in our area. And we're trying to do a whole number of things this summer, and some of those things now are coming up. So this Friday night, this Friday night, pretty cool deal, um, our first Friday night at Paradise Park, where we're inviting the community to come and share a meal together. Keystone Church, I believe, this Friday night is hosting the meal, and we're just going to eat it. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, there will also be games for kids, and hey, if you're not a kid and you want to play a game anyway, it's a game for you too. So every Friday night in July, starting this Friday night, we're going to just be having a community block party. The intent behind this is simply to serve our community and get to know them in, in a non-threatening kind of way, just to build relationships, okay? So come on out, great deal, rain or shine, Friday night, 5.30 Paradise Park. Second thing, if you were at our 9 o'clock hour in the adult Sunday school um, classrooms, you will have seen a sign-up sheet go around related to summer school um, tutoring, if you will, summer school programming that we're doing in the afternoon. If you hadn't seen that, there's just a slight adjustment we want you to know. If you are a middle schooler, you are now able to serve in this um, summer school programming as long as you bring your parent with you because they don't trust your parent without you, right? That's pretty much what we need. So you can sign up out there in the foyer on your way out. And again, it's Tuesday through Thursday, beginning July 9th, I believe it is next Tuesday, in which we're going to be offering to the Peckway Valley School District um, some programming uh, related to character development for about an hour and a half uh, in the afternoons, okay? So that's some of the stuff going on for Together 2013. All right. Hey, well, this morning I'm back on a series, part two of what is ultimately going to be a six-part series, and we're calling it 150. And the reason we're calling it 150 is because we wanted to call it 180, but didn't feel like we'd go all the way to 180, so we called it 150. No, that's not true. The reason we're calling it 150 is there's 150 psalms, and this is really a, 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 a work at looking at six of the 150 psalms, and our point behind doing this is simply to jump off of one of the core values that we hold here at Grace Point Church, and that is this, that the fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day. This is what we say, one of our seven core values, that the fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day. And as we're thinking about that and looking at the Psalms, we feel like the Psalms provide us with a real reflection, just an honest reflection on the broken heart of man reflecting on the full character of our God. And so this uh, series, and really this section of Psalms that we're looking at, provides us with a perspective on taking our brokenness in humanity and reflecting it against the fullness of God. And so one of the questions we ask here is, what do my desires tell me about my heart? And we hope that question kind of continues to rotate around in our minds as we hear these psalms um, spoken about and thought about and talked about. Last week, if you were here with us, we started at the beginning, Psalm one uh, out of the 150 we started at the beginning and here's what we said about psalm one that psalm one is really about this the more i want to know what god wants me to know the stronger i become psalm one if you remember the primary image there was about a tree being planted by streams of water 
being fed by the Word of God, being fed by God's ideals, not being fed by um, the ideas of, of man alone, not being fed by the ideas of people who don't honor or um, give time to or credit to God. So the more I want to know what God wants me to know, the more like that tree firmly planted by streams of living water I become. Now this week we're going to a different psalm. We're going to fast forward in the book of Psalms to a, to a new one. In order to kind of set this up, I need to take you back in time. Uh, those of you who've been here for a little while may or may not be tired of my Barbados stories. I don't care. When you're the pastor, you can tell Barbados stories, okay? But here's the deal. When I was a kid, I was about eight or nine years old, and what I did is I uh, played a lot of, we call it football there, you call it soccer here. And I would play a lot of soccer, a lot of football, and I would play outside a lot. Now, what I've learned in America is that people have created things called kick walls for their children and in their um, in their parks, right? And the idea being, really simple, there's a wall, kick, a, kick against it, right? There's a ball, take your soccer ball and kick against it. Because I learned, to my dismay, when I came back here on what we called furlough, we came back to rest for a year or whatever, you could not, in America, you, you cannot, by and large, kick a soccer ball against a house because of siding. That is a terrible invention, for an eight-year-old or nine-year-old who is used to, in my world, growing up in Barbados, I could take my soccer ball outside and my house was my kick wall. Truly. We had a, a part of our home that was uh, kind of cut out a little bit. It was a two-story home, and I don't know what it was made of. Uh, I didn't care. I just knew that I could kick it and it would bounce back to me. I, maybe it was made of cinder block. I don't know what it was made of. It was finished with something. I don't know what it was made of. But on the one part of our home... We had a garage kind of thing, really open-air garage, if you will. Maybe a carport is the best way to describe that. And then you walk into a kitchen, and it's a two-story piece. And as you walk through the home, then there's a stairway, obviously, that leads up to the front. That stairway, the, the wall that I would kick against would be kicking against that stairway. And so there weren't, I say that because there weren't windows at the bottom level in that part of the wall that I would kick against. So it was kind of fair game for me to kick there. But there was a window that was up the stairway about two-thirds of the way up, not quite up to the second floor, but not down by the first. I don't know why they put it there. It was really kind of funny to have it there. But it was one of those crank windows. If you have a shed, um, they have those slight little slat windows that all three of them at one time open up like that, and they close together like that. You know those old slat kind of windows? We had windows like those slats, except they were bigger, about this long and, and this wide. And you would turn them again, and they would kind of slat open and close. The problem with them is that they were single-pane glass. And I had a solid soccer ball that I was kicking, trying to be Pele or Madonna or whoever that was. Um, in that time, when I watched football or soccer, those were some of the guys who were, who were actually good. So the deal is, you can imagine what would happen, right? I'm kicking the ball against the wall, and over time, I'm breaking the glass. And I, I broke it once as I kicked it too high, and you hit it, and it shatters inside down the stairwell all the way down. And I remember feeling bad about that. And then the second time it happened, I'm like, oh, not again. And the third time it happened, I'm like, oh. And this is over a matter of, I don't know, maybe a year or something like that. The third time it happened, I still remember the feeling the third time it happened where um, I had this just as soon as I kicked it, I knew, oh, no, like, there it goes. And I heard the crash, and I thought, oh. And my heart just sunk, right? I mean, my heart sunk, and I thought, not again. I'm going to have to tell my dad again, that I just broke the window. And I remember sitting at the dinner table 
And I, I was sitting there literally with my head down, eating my supper. I wouldn't even look up. I was doing some kind of penance, I think, for the breaking of the window because I felt this shame and guilt of doing something I wasn't supposed to do. You relate to that? What I learned over time as I kept getting older is that my eight-year-old kind of default response to that is actually very normal. It's actually very human, isn't it? And it reminds me of our first parents, if you will, Adam and Eve, right? Their default reaction to sin was kind of the same thing, to, to hide it, to kind of do penance for it, and to kind of bring to themselves this, oh, the shame, the guilt, I can't believe I did that. And as I got older, I realized, you know, that, that, mm, that inner reaction that we have to when we do something that is wrong, that sin, that, um, that choice to do something that we know we shouldn't do, almost always brings with it this kind of kissing cousin of shame and guilt into our life. That immediately you feel, and I feel like, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Who do I need to hide this from? How can I kind of do some penance to show that I'm really remorseful about this? Boy, I can't, now I'm going to have to tell that Maybe I don't have to tell them that, ugh. And here's what we see. We see this with kids all the time, don't we? We see this with kids, the, the quote-unquote innocence of kids, which I don't buy for a minute, but anyway, the, 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 the innocence of not knowing their own emotions yet. And you kind of over, you, you might be as a parent watching what they're doing and they break something or they do, and you wonder, how are they going to react? And you don't say anything because you kind of want to watch. And the default reaction of most kids is kind of to hide it. And kind of to, like, that leg didn't really break off the chair, like I'll just stick it there and then no one will know that I broke the leg off the chair. And then someone sits on it and, ooh, you know, it's, it's over for them. But the default reaction is almost always coming right along with sin is this desire to hide it, to cover it, because of the shame associated with it. We feel this, don't we? I mean, come on now, let's be honest for, for a little while here. We, we feel this amongst ourselves. We feel this if you're in in high school or you're in junior high or you're a young adult and you're, you're trying to figure out the whole dating world and, you know, who's interested in me or who am I interested in. And, and then you start to do things with somebody and, and after a while you're like, I shouldn't be doing that with them. Like, mm, I shouldn't have gone that far with them. Like, that doesn't feel right. I know that my parents taught me different but, and I think God wants different, but I just did it and it just felt. And so now who do I need to hide this from? I can't tell mom and dad. I can't tell God about it. I can't tell my friends who go to church about this or I, because I have to kind of hide it because I did something that I, I shouldn't have done. And adults, spouses, husbands, wives, the thoughts that we have, the temptations that we fall prey to, and the, oh wow, I did that again, I looked at that again, I said that again, I was impatient again, and now I have to, I'm not going to tell them about that. And You ever walk into someone's home and they don't know you're there yet, and they get done yelling at the kids in the back room. Then they come out, hey, how's it going? What's going on? You know, the attempt to kind of hide the ugliness of our impatience in the back room while we bring out the cordiality or the hospitality in the front room. This is part of what is now normal in our human experience. And it happens to public figures as much as to private ones, if you will. It happens to people like Bill Clinton, doesn't it? It happens to people like Ted Haggard, doesn't it? It happens to people, presidential hopefuls like John Edwards, doesn't it? Guys who have gone through some major public profile failures 
and all of whom have decided to try to cover it up as the first step. And this morning, what we're looking at as we get into our psalm for this morning is we're going to look at a public figure who did something far worse than break a window, who did something far worse than that I can guarantee that you have ever done. I can guarantee you that right now, that nothing that you have done to this point in your life will be worse than the man that we're looking at this morning. He's done something far worse than Bill Clinton or Ted Haggard or John Edwards. He's done something far worse than most anyone you probably know personally. It's the story of a guy who um, you will know immediately once I say it, immediately who it is. But his story and his account of failure has become so commonplace that we sometimes stop and we sometimes fail to embrace the, the severity and the power of what he actually did in his position of power. And the story of the man we're talking about is really King David. King David of Israel, the, the king who, and you know his, if you want to call it an indiscretion, that's a polit- politically correct term of talking about his adultery, his failure, his incredibly um, uh, arrogant decisions that he made as king. David and Bathsheba is the story, and we need to recount that story now for us to understand the psalm that we're looking at. And many of you know the story of David and Bathsheba, but for the sake of getting on the same page, let's just think about it again. Think about it in these terms. David, a king of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 11 is where the story is, is, is told. You don't need to turn there now, but 2 Samuel 11, the story is told. And it begins by saying that in the springtime when kings go to war and they were going to war against the Ammonites, that David sent his troops, but he stayed home. And so you have a man immediately, a king, who sends his troops into battle and where he normally should be on the battlefront, he's not. And so immediately the chapter begins and he's made a decision not to join his men on the battlefield. Interesting issue of integrity as a leader, isn't it? Now, you're going to go, but I'm going to stay. You're going to go, I'm going to enjoy the comforts of home. You go do my work and kind of let me know how it goes. So they're on the battlefield one night, and, and you know what happens here. David, he's just restless, and he's not getting internet access where he's at, and he just doesn't have anything to do, no Angry Birds to play, Facebook isn't working. So he goes out on top of the palace and walks around out there to get some fresh air. So he's walking around getting fresh air, and it must have been early in the evening or a full moon, I don't know, and then you know the deal, right? There's on the rooftop over there, there's Bathsheba, there she is. Wow. And he is struck with this beautiful woman who's bathing in the evening on the rooftop. And everything within this red-blooded man forgets what is right and good to do and decent to do. And he sends people. He sends people in his own palace. He said, hey, go find out about this woman who lives over there. So he moves from, I just saw it, to now I'm going to make a move on this thing. And now I'm going to involve other people from my palace. They're going to know about it, but I don't care because I just want to know. They come back and they're like, hey, you know, that lady, I don't know what you wanted to know about her, David, but I just want you to know she's the daughter of this guy and she's also the wife of Uriah. If you remember Uriah, David, yeah, he's out fighting your battle for you. He's on the battlefield. While you're here, remember that Uriah? Oh, that Uriah, yeah, okay. Well, while he's there, can you get her for me? Basically what he says to his, his people. Okay, we'll do the king's will. So they go and they get her. They bring Bathsheba to the palace. You've got to wonder what's going through Bathsheba's mind. Okay, my husband's not here. I just got summoned to the king's palace. Why? What's happening? And in that moment then, he 
goes in and sleeps with Bathsheba and apparently fulfills whatever desires that were in his heart and mind at that time. And she then leaves the palace. And you wonder now what's going through David's mind. Like, was that all worth it? Uriah is still out there. Days go by. Wonder what Bathsheba is thinking. Wonder where this crosses a significant line into a whole lot of other things. But at some point, Bathsheba sends a message to David and says, David, I'm pregnant. My husband's not here. And David, okay, okay, plan B. Um, get Uriah. Bring him back quickly because I need the timing of this thing to look like it wasn't me. So get Uriah. Uriah comes back and, and he says, hey, Uriah, you know, how's the battle going? What's going on? And Uriah says, hey, things are going fine. We're working hard, you know, blah, blah, blah. David says, well, hey, um, rest tonight, go home, rest tonight, get some sleep, um, and then tomorrow we'll send you back out there. And so if you know the story, then Uriah, incredible story of ironies in this account. Uriah, being a man of integrity, says, um, okay, but he goes and he leaves and he sleeps outside the palace gates. Sleeps on the doorstep, basically, of the king. And in the morning, David is told, Uriah didn't go home. Like, Bathsheba may not even know that he's here because he didn't open his door and ever go in, even once. And everyone will know this. And so David's like, Uriah, come here, let's talk about this, man. Why didn't you go home? Like, go home. And, and Uriah says, King David, as surely as you live, I will not enjoy the pleasures of my home while my soldiers, while my comrades are out in the tents, in the battlefield. I cannot do that as a man of integrity. And David's like, Hey, that's good. I should try that, right? That's a good thing. I like you, Uriah. Why don't you come back tonight, man, and we'll have a party. We're going we're gonna to fill you up, and I'm going to treat you like royalty. Tomorrow you're going to go back. And his plan is, let me get this guy drunk. Hopefully, if I get him drunk, he will lose his morality at the door as he leaves. Hopefully his integrity that's kind of hardwired in him will be gone when he's drunk. And that's what he tries to do. He gets Uriah drunk. So Uriah leaves and he walks out the door and he stops at the doorstep of the king's palace and sleeps there again for a second night. His integrity apparently is so deeply driven that even while he's drunk, he still has his wits about him to say, no, I will not enjoy the pleasures of my home while my men are out there. So David hears that news and he summons Uriah a third time and he says, Uriah, come. I need you to send this message. Take this to Joab, the commander. And he's written a death sentence for Uriah that Uriah is carrying with him to the battlefield. And that message that Uriah is delivering that he knows he can't open because it's not for him that has a king's seal on it says, Joab, this is what I want you to do. I want you to press into the Ammonites and when you're close to the city and in the fiercest part of the fighting, I want you to put Uriah out front. And when they come most fiercely, I want you to withdraw your troops so that... Uriah will be struck down and die. And Uriah carries this message to Joab and delivers it to Job. And you wonder as Joab opens that and reads that on the battlefield, delivered by the man who is going to die by Joab's actions and following out the king's orders, what is Joab thinking about the man that he is following? So the battle ensues and indeed Uriah is put in that spot and he's taken out. And Joab sends a messenger back to the King David and says, hey, to this messenger, tell Joab what, tell, tell King David what happened. And when he gets angry, when his temper rises because we lost men in this battle, tell him, 
to pacify him. At the end, when he gets angry, tell him, and Uriah died as well. And so indeed, the messenger comes back to the palace and runs in. Maybe he does a marathon to get there. I don't know how he gets there. He runs back to the palace. He gets there. and King David hears his report of what's going on. And David gets angry. He said, didn't you learn a lesson? Didn't you know when you advance that close to the wall, isn't that how that person died? Remember that woman held that stone out and dropped it on that person's head? Didn't you learn anything in battle? This is not what you do. You don't bring the troops that close to the wall. Then the messenger says, and Uriah died as well. And David said, the sword takes one as well as the other. Encourage Joab with this news. Keep going. Keep fighting. It's okay. Bathsheba hears the news. You wonder what she's thinking. A couple weeks ago, I was summoned to the king's palace. Now I'm pregnant, and now my husband's dead. I'm sure there's no coincidence there. After her period of mourning is over, David sends more people and says, go get Bathsheba to be my wife. You wonder, the people in the palace are thinking, there's nothing fishy going on here at all. Nothing at all. This is all normal. You know. And over a period of time, then Bathsheba gives birth to a son. And then, in 2 Samuel 12, a guy by the name of Nathan, a prophet Nathan, comes to visit David and speaks to him. And if you know the story at all, you know that he draws him into um, an emotional story about a, a guy stealing and, and killing the sheep of one guy. But only one little sheep, while he had a hundred others, and he killed that one, he took his one little sheep. And David said, that man should die. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. And immediately David knew what was happening. And then this is where David writes the psalm that we read today. This is the context in which David is now going to write Psalm chapter 51. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. Psalm 51. This is now finally David's expression of his heart, of what he feels in this moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you in the pew around you. That Bible is our gift to you. If you don't own one, that's our our gift to you this morning. This book of Psalms is kind of right in the middle of your Bible. And Psalm 51 is where we're at today. And you should know this. This is now, as we begin to read this psalm, Let's think about the timing of this, okay? David sees Bathsheba, he sleeps with her, then she conceives and gives birth to a child. How long does that take? Right? You know, okay? That's a nine-month deal, at least. We have to give time on either side for a little bit. This is is now, and you need to imagine this, this is now, this is not a couple of days after David did this. This is almost a year after David. He sleeps with Bathsheba and has Uriah executed. This is almost a year that the king is sitting on this news, not processing it with God at all. This psalm is written almost a year where all of this angst in his heart, he knew what he did was wrong. And for a year he's kept it in and he's hidden it because of shame and guilt, just like Adam and Eve did and just like I wanted to do with my little soccer ball story. I want to hide from the shame and guilt that is a part of my life. For a year, David sits on this. And then finally, when Nathan breaks through to him, he's able to write in Psalm chapter 51, and he begins, 
have mercy on me. Oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. These first two verses set up David's heart and how he's feeling. He finally comes, he finally comes to God after almost a year, so difficult to imagine, after almost a year, and his first request, have mercy on me. Oh God, have mercy according to your unfailing love and your great compassion. Then he says, blot it out, wash away and cleanse me. And then he goes in verses 3 to 5. He says, hey, I know, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. You think so? I think it's been in front of him for a year. He's been thinking about this for a year. I know my sin. It's before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And then he says, I mean, to drive this even further, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I mean, how can I do all of this? You ever been there? How can I, God, how can I do all of this? What is wrong with me? I know my sin. It's always before me. I know my tendencies. I know my failures. It's right in front of me. I live with myself every day. I know where I blow it. And surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is just a part of what I wrestle with. And then he says in verse 6, But surely you desire truth in the inner parts, and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. This is a problem. Verses 5 and 6 introduced to us a real problem. Verse 5 says, I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. And then verse 6 comes right on the back of that and says, hey God, surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. That's good. But what is the inmost part of David? Sin. From the time my mother conceived me, from the time that I was even conceived, the inmost part of me has been sinful. And so I have a real problem, God. From my... From myself, I know that my sin is always before me. It's right in front of me. My, my struggle to give in to temptation, to give in to pride, to give in to my temper, to, to kind of push it a little bit, to kind of blame my spouse for things that I know are my fault, to not parent the way I should, to be kind of selfish in how I spend my money and resources and all that. I mean, I, my sin is always before me, God, and I've just been sinful from birth and then, but I know that you want in that innermost spot where I think sin lives, you want truth to supplant that. So I have a problem because I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I know I should do. And this is David's problem in verses 5 and 6. And then he says in verse 7, So, because of my problem, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. We say that all the time, don't we? Cleanse me with hyssop. I need hyssop cleaning. That's an Old Testament ritual. The hyssop plant was used as a part of the Old Testament sacrificial system for cleaning the sacrifice. Okay? Cleanse me with the hyssop plant and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So we saying, God, you want truth in the inner parts. I believe I have sin in the inner parts. I have a problem. I need you. I need you to cleanse me and wash me from the inside out. And what I need from you, God, is I need you. And here's verse 8. I need to hear again. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed, what? Let the bones you have crushed, what? 
rejoice. Think about that. For a year now, think about how in the world has David been feeling? Have you ever tried to keep something a secret that you have done wrong for any period of time? Yes, you have. I'm just going to go with yes on that one, okay? Yes, you have. Now, how do you feel? Usually, you feel bad. Usually, you feel terrible. Usually, you just feel like, man, I hope they don't read that email. I hope they don't look over my computer history. I hope they don't look at that conversation I had. I hope that they don't ever go back and talk to that person that I kind of lied to just a little bit, but I kind of have to hope that it doesn't work that way and my boss doesn't find out where I really was and all that stuff. You ever tried to keep something secret for any amount of time? Seriously, David, you slept with with your soldier's wife while he was fighting for you and then you got him drunk and then you killed him and then you're passing off this child as a legitimate child of yours? You've been hiding this for a year. Do you think he's experienced any joy for the last year? Do you think his soul has felt the freedom of worship of God for a year? This is a man who he says, my bones have been crushed. For a year I've been keeping this. He's saying, I need it again. I need the joy that comes from the washing and the cleansing. I need this joy and gladness. And here's the thing, that until we process, until we confess the sin and the pain that comes in that, we can never experience the joy of God. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Until we actually process the pain of sin and the shame that comes along with it, we cannot experience the joy of God. And I'm telling you, there are some of us here this morning who have been sinned against and some of us who have sinned and haven't dealt with it. And we haven't dealt with, some of us have not dealt with those realities of the pain that you have experienced or that you have caused to someone else. And part of that problem for you now is that because that pain hasn't been processed, you struggle to connect emotionally with God and with others. You struggle to experience joy and freedom in worship. You struggle to love well and freely without strings attached. You struggle to trust people because the pain of the past has not been dealt with, either the sin that is committed against you or the sin that you have committed. Until we process the pain, it feels like what David is saying here. My heart, my bones have been crushed. Let me experience again the joy that comes from confessing, from owning what happened. Some of you who have been sinned against need to be careful how much you own of the things that happened to you. Some of us who are in the other boat and have sinned and have been trying to kind of push it to the side, owning it brings the freedom that you know that you want. So David says it again. He comes in a second wave of requests, and he says in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And then he says in verse 12, again, the theme of joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. All of those verbs from verses 9 to 11 
are talking about, God, please cleanse me. Please clean me. Please, 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 please. I need, verse 12, I need the joy of my salvation back. I was not made to be someone who can hide the pain of my sin. I was not made to be someone who can make it look like I've got things perfectly under control. I can't handle that. I've not been made for that. Clean me, cleanse me, God. And then, verses 13 on to 15, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The anticipation that when David is clean, then others will look at his life and say, man, who's this God who gives you this life? In verses 16 and 17, his acknowledgement, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In other words, you can't, your forgiveness cannot be bought if I go to church enough. I cannot get rid of this feeling of guilt and shame if I just read enough books. I cannot get rid of this if I sacrifice my job to stay here with my family. I cannot buy your forgiveness by sacrificing things so that I can show you that I put my head down at dinner when I break a window because I want to show you how sorry I really am. So I'm going to sacrifice for you. And I'm going to show you that I'm worth your forgiveness. And he says, you don't delight in that. Your delight is in a heart that is broken, a broken and contrite heart that you come and you say, God, I've got nothing for you except an absolute honesty, man. I've blown it. I need you. Cleanse me. Clean me from the inside out. And then he finally has this vision in verses 18 and 19 of a, of a nation that is prospering on these same principles. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper and build up, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there'll be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, and bulls will be offered on your altar. This vision that God can restore not only him, but also then the nation to a place of blessing when his heart is right with God. So here's the thing in Psalm 51. As we read about David's story and his sin and his pain and his default behavior, which was mine when I kicked the ball against the, the window for like the third time in a few months. I want to hide this thing. I want, I, I'm, I'm ashamed of this. I feel guilty that I did this. And I want to run. I want to run from telling the truth about what happened and who I am. And here's, here's the blessing of God in the midst of this. And here's what I think if you want to take a main point from what this psalm is about, and it's this. Confession chases shame and replaces it with fullness of joy. Here is the the blessing of God in giving you and giving me a way or a means to get right with him. And that means is confession. To say to him, God, I have blown it here. I need you to wash me and cleanse me, to chase the shame from my life and replace it with the fullness of joy that comes. Not from knowing that I'm able to do this, but from knowing that you're a good enough God to forgive me. Now we need to dialogue on this just for a couple of minutes here, because this is, this is important, because as a culture, as a corporate group and as individuals, we struggle with this idea of confession. But this is what David did. So we need to talk for a minute about why we don't like confession. Because if, you're anything, if your experience is anything like mine, that is that we generally don't experience groups or times in life where we confess things to one another. You ever been to the, 
grocery store and you got the clerk start confessing to you, hey, good to see you this morning, good to see you. thanks for coming by, getting the bread again, I just want to confess to you, hey, I cheated on my husband last week, hope you have a great day, we'll see you later. Like, not going to happen. Sunday school environment, same thing, probably not going to happen. Um, in here in church on the way out, man, the Phillies are on, I don't know what time they play today, I don't even know if they're on, um, but hey, they're doing well, and hey, I really was, I've been unfaithful in my thought life this week, how about you? Good stuff going on for you too? Yeah. All right, good for you. You know, yeah, we just don't do that. We just don't do the confession thing very well. We don't know how to. And there's, there's problems with this. So, why we don't like confession? Number one, these are just my thoughts, so they may not be right, so you can decide in your own mind if they're right or wrong, if they're helpful or not. We see it as failure rather than success, right? Confession becomes a place you go as a point of failure, not as a place of success. And so, by and large, we think, man, if I have to confess something, I'm not doing something right. Well, that's true. But if you never confess, you're doing something even more wrong than right right? We see it as a place of failure. I don't want to go there. I want to kind of stay in success. I'm going to kind of cover it, and if I don't have to talk about it again, then I'm good. So we see it as a failure rather than a success. We also are intoxicated with self-preservation, aren't we? We're intoxicated with self-preservation. In other words, I'm going to, maybe if I do something, maybe if I, I say that, I look at that, I think that, I don't support my husband this way, I do support my wife that way, but not this way. I'm really kind of selfish at home. I mean, to be honest, I blame my wife for a lot of the problems. I blame my husband for a lot of the problems. We're not very good parents, and here's why. It's not my fault, it's her fault. You know, I mean, if she were better, it would be better. You know, and we kind of point fingers and kind of become selfish. And I mean, I'm, I'm a young adult, and I'm, well, I'm not a young adult, but if, you were, if I was a young adult, and, Anyway, you get the point. You know, life is kind of ahead of me, and I'm not really ready yet to take on ownership, or I'm in senior high or junior high, and, you know, I'm not ready yet to do that, and I'm kind of, eh, I'm, so I can kind of blow it here and blow it there, and who really cares, because it's not, not that important yet, or whatever. Yeah, okay. We're intoxicated with self-preservation, that idea that um, what's most important is that I cover myself so that no one sees that I've done anything wrong. And confession undoes all of that. And it's kind of scary that way. The same concept here, that we rationalize our way to hardened hearts. And that is, hey, I mean, everyone else is doing it. Is, seriously, is it really that bad? I mean, everyone else is a selfish husband, a selfish wife. Or everyone else is kind of living that way in the dating world. I mean, seriously? Like, I know I probably, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But it's not that bad. It's just not that bad. There are people who do worse things than that. And then we rationalize our way to a hardened heart, and then we do that again, then we go a little further. And we don't confess at the point where we need to. We don't confess because we're afraid to trust both God and man. I don't know if I can trust God with this, and here's a problem. I, don't know if I, I really don't know if I can trust you with my stuff. And you don't know if you can trust me with your stuff. And this is where we go beyond Psalm 51 into the book in the New Testament called James. And James writes in chapter 5, verse 16, Confess your sins to one another. And that's a real problem. So let's pretend that verse doesn't exist, okay? So we have a problem trusting both God and, in particular, one another on this issue of confession. We just struggle here. Why we need confession? How else will joy be restored after the pain of sin? I mean, what's plan B? That's my basic question. Okay, when you sin, and you know this too, right? Shame comes into your world, and you think, man, I, I, I shouldn't have, but I did. I shouldn't have, but I did. Unless there's confession, the hope of joy and life doesn't come back. Just doesn't, without confession. What's plan B without confession? And then the second thing is this. So our kids would know the kind of people to marry. Okay, one of you laughed on that. It was good. 
our kids will know what kind of people to marry. I'm kind of joking about that, but here's why I put that up there. So our kids will know what kind of people to marry. I really kind of only half mean that, but here's why I kind of half do mean that. And that is, listen, don't you want this for your kids? Would you want for your kids or your grandkids, or if you're going to ever have a kid in the future, or if you even like kids at all? Wouldn't you want kids to be, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to say to them, listen, here's the ideal. You know, when you take the cookie and you shouldn't have taken the cookie, or you kick your sister and you shouldn't have kicked your sister, we've got to confess that and make it right with God, right? I mean, who, right? Is that, that the generally the good thing to do? Yeah, yeah, okay. We want this for our children, but we struggle to own it for ourselves. We want our children to be like this, but when it's me, it's too hard to trust you. It's too hard to trust God. We want this character trait developed within the brokenness of our children. This is what we want. Okay, how do I confess? A couple of quick thoughts for you. How do I confess? Number one, what David did, write it out to God. We don't get the benefit of Psalm 51 if David doesn't take the time to write it like he did. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a powerfully emotive psalm. The the things that were pent up in his heart for a year come out in this psalm in powerful ways. For you, this might mean write it out to God. You don't need to write Psalm 151, okay? You can just kind of write your own deal. You can journal that thing out. You can type that thing out. You can put it on your reminders or your notes on your iPhone or your, your Android or whatever you want to do. You can, you can put it on a piece of paper. They still make those. You can write it with pen. And you can write it out. And it becomes real. And then you can also speak it out to others. James 5.16 to come to someone and say, listen, here's where I've blown it, and I, I need you to know this because I trust you, and I'm trusting you with this, and I'm confessing to you, not because you're going to forgive me, but you're going to help keep me accountable. You're going to help keep me fixed in this world. Okay? And finally, if none of that works, and if you're kind of sitting here this morning, you're thinking, yeah, I've blown it, and I don't know what to do, and, and my, if you only knew my sin, if you only knew the things that I did, Here's an email address we throw out for times like that. Livinginthelight at gracepointparadise.com. If you don't know where to go or who to talk to or what to do or should I confess this or not or I think that they need to confess, what should I do for them, then livinginthelight at gracepointparadise.com is an email address that gets only to myself and Pastor Joel and we'd be glad to interact with you there and talk with you personally about that uh, as a follow-up, okay? So here's the deal. The fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day. In God's fullness, he offers to us confession. And confession is that peace that chases shame and can replace it with the fullness of joy. Simple as that. Confession is God's gift to us that can chase shame and replace that in our hearts with the fullness of joy in God. And it's as simple and as powerful as that. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you very much for the time this morning to have to interact with your word and with your people, to look at Psalm 51 and look at the real life of a a guy who absolutely blew it, who destroyed it, who made some incredibly arrogant decisions, who slept with another man's wife and then had him killed to cover it up, and who then expressed all of this in one year's pent-up emotions in Psalm 51 and cried on your mercy and asked for your forgiveness. And Father, you know this and and believe this is very true right here. There's no one listening to this or sitting here this morning who's done anything worse than David has done. 
And yet we sit here sometimes thinking, man, God, I'm such a failure, I'm such a failure, I can never, I can never, I can never. I don't measure up, I don't even do the things that I want to do, my ideals, I can't even hold to them. God, you know that in our inner part we are sinful from birth, but that you desire truth in those inner parts. Help us to confess quickly. Not to allow there to be lag time between what we do and the the sense that this was just not quite right, to confess both to you and to the party that we've offended, to keep things right, to keep learning wisdom in the inner parts that we can live from a heart of truth, from a heart of confession. We're broken people, God. We're all broken. We have all sinned. We're going to continue to sin this week. It's just going to be, you know, that's our our way. And yet we, we also know that you are a gracious and forgiving God who is, as this song says, mighty to save us. You can move the mountains, and you can certainly move the habits in our lives. You can move the addictions that we have. You can move the tendencies that we have to be impatient, to yell, to be inconsiderate, to be very selfish. You can move those things in our hearts as we continue to confess both to you and to others that you are God and we are leaning heavily on your mercy and your grace. So, Father, we thank you that you're mighty to save us even from ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray.